0: We're starting a new series today, and uh, this series has to do with the church. We're going to be looking at several different images that are used in the New Testament of the church. Today, we're looking at this very familiar, to many of us, image of the church as a body with many members. Now, my goal through this series is to help us as a congregation to realize how important this community is, how important the local congregation is. My goal is to uh, convince you, if you're not already convinced, that it is important, that it's worth investing in, it's worth making a commitment to, it's worth spending your time and energy and money on. And during a transition in leadership, it's crucial for us to remember that while pastors are important, it's really about the church itself. It's about the church much more than it is about the leader or the leaders. It's about the community. It's about the local gathering of believers under Christ. And so I'm going to try to impress this on all of our hearts that that's really what it is about. It's about the church. So let's read 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 26. First Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 26. For just as the body is one and has many members, given greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This is God's word. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm really just going to walk through this passage. So my outline is very simple. We're going to talk about one body, and then we're going to talk about the many members, just like the text Lays it out. The point is very clear, isn't it? The church is like a body that is united and yet has various members. You have hands and feet and eyes and ears. They're all different and yet together they comprise one body. We're united and yet we are diverse and varied and different. So that's the point. That's the image of a local church. Now let's keep this outline simple one body, many members, and let's see what we can learn from this text together. Paul asserts, Paul is the writer of this book, he asserts the essential unity of the church. Now, notice he says that regardless of ethnicity, whether you're Jewish or Greek, which would also mean religious background, cultural background, regardless of that, regardless whether you're a slave or free, so regardless of economic status, regardless of which part in the society, the powerful or the oppressed you come from, in the body, in the church, we are all one. Now we would add to that that regardless of gender also, regardless of family status, regardless of ability and education, all of us Christians are connected together in the local congregation. We are supposed to live in unity with each other and in harmony, interaction, working together, living together. So this diversity is not, uh, is not a problem for the church, it's an advantage, Paul says. We're supposed to celebrate our diversity, and yet this diversity is not an obstacle to our unity. So we're diverse, and yet we are supposed to be united, working together. Now, what is the basis of such unity? It's, it's hard to imagine so many different people coming together and getting along and, and being okay with each other, especially if you throw in all sorts of other factors we haven't even mentioned. How can we all be united? What's the basis for that unity? We'll look at verse 12 first. Just as the body is one, and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Now, I expected him to say the church, right? As the body has many members, but as one, so it is with Christ. The church, that seems like what he means, and that's what the whole chapter is about. And yet, he says, so it is with Christ. What Paul is saying is that, for him, it's as as unthinkable that the church would be divided as it is that Christ himself would be divided. Christ is one person, perfectly in harmony with himself, and so the church has to reflect Christ in that same way. Now, this is a big statement, especially because we've all been part of church and we know how it actually works, right? But theologically, for Paul, church reflects Christ, and as Christ is one, so the body of Christ is one as well. The church is his body. It's not just a body, but it's his body. And because Christ is the head of the body, is not divided, so the church cannot be divided as well. There's this really close connection of Christ and the church. Something that we often miss, I think. We see those two separate things. I can be with Christ, but not with the church. I can be with the church, but not with Christ. But in the New Testament, if you are with Christ, you're with the church. Those are inseparable. Now, remember Paul's own conversion story? I bet you that's what he has in mind here as he's writing it. Remember Paul, who was a persecutor of the church? He was very zealous for the Jewish religion and the Jewish way of life. So he decided that he would show initiative, go to the high priest and demand that he would be given a letter, a letter of authority, that would allow him to go to other parts of, of, of the empire, as far as, Tars, as far as Damascus he went, go to other parts, other towns, find Christians, arrest them, and bring them back to Jerusalem to be jailed and possibly executed for their faith. So this is a zealous man who is going after the Christians, he's persecuting the church. And on the way to Damascus, as he goes with his letter in hand, Jesus shows up. Right? Jesus shows up. Do you remember what Jesus said to him? He said, Saul, Saul, which was his name, later changed to Paul. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me, he says. Jesus took it very personally that Paul was persecuting his church. His body was being hurt, and so Jesus was being hurt. And so for Paul, since that day, church and Christ are forever together. He doesn't see the distinction. He doesn't see the separation. Church is united as Christ is united. If you persecute the church, you persecute Christ himself. The point is clear in this passage that the church must function as Jesus functions. The church is one as Jesus is one. Those who are converted to Christ, when you first come to Christ, you understand what the gospel is. You understand that salvation is by grace. You first experience his presence through Christ. That is when you get incorporated into the church. That's when you get connected with everybody else who's also in Christ. Now, that's that's a remarkable thing that happens when you are personally converted, and yet, you're now part of this big family, big body, all of a sudden. Now, this is difficult for us because we don't live in the culture that thinks communally. But listen to Alistair Begg, that Scottish preacher from Cleveland, who said, we come to Christ individually, but we do not live in Christ solitarily. We come to Christ individually. It's very important to make a personal expression of faith. But... We don't live in Christ, don't continue in Christ solitarily on our own by ourselves. When you come into Christ, you come into the body of Christ, which is the church. And yes, many of us, we talk about this universal church, Christians everywhere, this this, sort of this ethereal body. But in the New Testament, it's about the local church. It's about these people that are gathering in this place that know each other in this community. We, We can't have this this abstract view of the church. You can't say I belong to this big church, but I don't go to church. It doesn't make any sense in the New Testament terms. So really when I'm talking about the church, I'm talking about the local church, this congregation or other congregations that people people are associated with. But for us, in this case, this is here. This is the church. And if you're connected to Christ, you're also connected to the church. In the New Testament, there's no... There's no concept of Christians functioning outside of the local church. There is in our culture, for sure, yeah. Many of us would say, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church. Or I listen to sermons online, or or I just hang out with friends, and that's sort of my church. But in the New Testament, when you think about the way Paul and Peter and others describe the church, that's where Christians are. There's no outside for them. It's just that's their life. That's who they're with, is their brothers and sisters, and all the other metaphors we're going to look at in the next few weeks. That's your family. In the New Testament, uh, Paul goes even as far as saying, if you're excluded from the church, you are delivered over to Satan. That's some strong language. 1 Corinthians 5. That's church discipline. When the church excludes a member because the member is not willing to submit to Christ, be open with their lives, and repent of their sin. If that happens, and it does happen, and you never want it to happen, but it does happen. In the New Testament terms, that person is given over to Satan, because Satan is outside of the church, Christ is inside the church. I mean, it's a, it's a concept that is, that is so shocking to us as Western 21st century believers, and is so familiar to many Christians in the world today, and certainly throughout the history of the church, so let's follow the logic of logic of Paul. If unity is based in Christ, then divisions come when we drift away from Christ. Right. When does the church start to struggle? That's when we take our focus off of Christ. You get distracted. You start thinking about yourself more about other, than others. You start wondering about issues that are not essential, you start putting yourself first, and, and, and then all of a sudden the church is divided. There's conflict. There's strife now. Why? Focus from Christ has been taken off, and now we're focusing on ourselves, and there's not enough in us to sustain our unity. We need Christ to sustain our unity. Divisions and conflicts come when we lose that focus on Christ. Now, there's the second explanation for the unity of the church and that is the work of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 13. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. The Spirit's desire is to continue the work of Jesus and to apply the work of Jesus to the individual hearts and local communities of believers. So when we're saying it's Christ and the Holy Spirit, there's really not a juxtaposition to that. The Spirit does what Christ did, and he just continues the work of Christ while Christ is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. Christians are brought into the church through the work of the Spirit. I think both these terms, baptized in the Spirit and made drink of one's Spirit, refer to conversion. That's what I was talking about earlier. Baptism is not water baptism here, even though water baptism signifies the same thing. But this is the initial step into the life with Christ. It's the baptism in the Spirit, not by the Spirit. In the Spirit, in a sense, that's the water. That's where you are being immersed into Jesus baptizes, but he baptizes you into the Spirit. What does that mean? That's an image, but what does it mean? It means that when you become a Christian, the Spirit of God comes into you and changes you completely. You have a new nature. You have a new faith. You have a new love for God. Things are different. You're a new creation, Scripture says. You used to be this way. You used to not like what God likes. You used to rebel against God, and now the Holy Spirit came in. And grace of Christ has been extended to you you've responded by faith and now you're different you've been baptized in the spirit John the Baptist baptized with water Jesus came to baptize with the holy spirit Now this idea of being made we're all made to drink of one spirit uh, another translation by DA Carson is we were all drenched in the spirit we were all flooded in one spirit So imagine a group of people that are all drenched in the rain. That's the experience of a Christian community. We are all drenched in the spirit, flooded by the spirit. And it's such a real experience, it's as real as being wet in the rain, that we're all united by that experience. Now we're all together in this rain, we're all running for shelter, we're all in it together. That's the image here. And so the unity of the church, the harmony, the interaction among believers Does not come from us, it comes from Christ, in whom all of us are in now, and it comes through the Spirit who brings us into Christ. This is very important. Our unity cannot be based on our agreement, it cannot be based on our similarities. It has to be based on Christ and the continuous work of the Spirit. So let me ask you, this is a very important question. Are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Have you been changed by the Spirit? Has it happened to you? If so, if it happened, you are part of the church. If you are struggling with church, there can be many reasons, of course, and some of them we'll look at as we go on. But could it be that you need to restore your focus on Christ and submit to the Spirit who desires that every member in Christ's body, function in unity with others. Could it be that? Could it be that you lost focus of Christ? And that's why you're uncomfortable with church. That's why you have this struggle with church. And I know I'm speaking to people who are at church, but hopefully as this goes online and other people listen to it, maybe we, we can affect other people with, with this message. There are many people, many people in our neighborhood who don't go to church who are believers. Why? Again, could be many reasons. But one of the reasons, maybe, and maybe in more cases than not, is that they lost focus of Christ. Because if you start focusing on yourself, it's very hard to be nice to other people. Right? It's very hard to get along with others. But if you can have a different focus, if you can look at Christ who saved you, whose body was broken for you, whose blood was spilled for you, as we'll we'll come to the table in a few minutes. As, As you think about that, As he is the focus, sure, you can come together to the cross with other people, right? Of course you can be together with others. We're also focusing on Christ and depending on the Holy Spirit to maintain this focus. Now that's the oneness of the body. Let's talk about the many members. And I'm going to make three statements from this text to try to help us sort it out, because this is an extended illustration here, and I'd I'd like to systematize things, I guess. So here are the three statements that will help us understand how many members, different members, function together. First statement, each member is different from other members. Each member is different from other members. We must never strive for conformity in the church. God wants local congregations to be diverse. Just like, just think about it, it's, it's ridiculous to think, and that's what Paul is saying here, it's ridiculous to think of the body, the human body, consisting of one eye and nothing else, right? It's, it's grotesque, it's ridiculous to think that. Or one ear, or a thumb, you know, you can think of any other part of the body, and that's, that's the whole person, that's ridiculous to think about that. And so it is, follow the logic, so it is ridiculous to make up a whole church of people who are the same. Right? It's ridiculous to have a church full of hipsters. Maybe for other reasons too, but certainly because they're all the same. It's ridiculous to think of a church that only has one ethnicity or one economic status. It's ridiculous to have a church where everybody is a young parent or everybody is retired. Now, those things are not what the Bible means for us to do. We're supposed to have all sorts of people in the church. Of course, the church is supposed to be diverse, just like the body, the human body is diverse. Now this is how Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it. He says, Strong and weak, wise or foolish, talented or untalented, pious or less pious, the complete diversity of individuals in the community is no longer a reason to talk and judge and condemn and therefore to be a pretext for self-justification. Rather, this diversity is a reason for rejoicing in one another and serving one another. Bonhoeffer is really contrasting two different views because the world says, our culture says, conformity is good. We want people like us around us. We want to live in a neighborhood that has people like me. We want to go to a school that has kids like me. That's how we think. That's how our culture thinks. That's how the world thinks. Why? Because as long as I surround myself by people like me, I don't have to change, you see. That just affirms who I am. And if my goal in life to, in fact, affirm who I am and not change, and to support the self and to affirm and lift up the self and live as self-centered a life as I possibly can, then yes, I'm going to surround myself with people just like me. Because nobody's going to challenge who I am because they're like me. Do you see? That's the world. But the Gospel is completely different. The Gospel tells us that you need to surround yourself with people who are different so that you can see who you are. So that your self-centeredness could be exposed, challenged, and changed by the example of others. The more diverse the community that you're in, the easier it is for our selfishness to be exposed. This is a simple gospel principle. We are to be with people who are not like us. That's how God designed a church. And so, if you move or when you move, most of you are not going to be here in this church for a long time. When you move and you look for another church, do not look for a church that has people like you. Find a church that's diverse, whether it's ethnically, whether it's racially, whether it's economically, whether it's age. Look for a church that's, that has all sorts of different people because that will help you grow as a believer. It will help you to be sanctified in the Spirit at a much greater pace than if you were in a church that's everybody's like you. I mean, that's the dream for this church. We, we want to be a diverse church. Our neighborhood isn't diverse, but we want to be a diverse church because that's who God wants us to be. And so we deliberately try to reach other people that are not like us. Or like me, I should say, because nobody else is like me here. We we try to bring variety and, and difference right into the life of our church. It is wrong for a church to say everybody has to say this, wear this, and behave like this. That's not what a church is. We're a body with many members. We're all different. We're supposed to be all different. We're not trying to conform everybody to one image. No, we're supposed to celebrate this diversity in the church. Now second statement from this chapter, each member is dependent on other members. First one was that everybody's different. Each member is different. This one is about dependence. Each member is dependent on other members. Just like different parts of the body are connected to one another, they're dependent on each other to work, to function properly. So are different people in the church are connected and dependent on each other. Now, the usual way to look at it, and this is how typically how this sermon would go, is to say that we who are strong, who have something to offer, need to help those who are weak. So the weak need the strong. This is a typical line of reasoning. There are lots of people with needs. If you can help fill that need, they need you to fill that need, and so you should do that. So the point here is that the weak need the strong. And that is true, absolutely. If you have a need, you look to someone else who can fill that need, that's very appropriate to feel that you need that person in your life to help you. But this is also true. Listen to Bonhoeffer again. Every Christian community must realize that not only do the weak need the strong, but also that the strong cannot exist without the weak. The elimination of the weak is the death of the fellowship. Bonhoeffer says that if you have a fellowship full of strong people, and there are no weak people, this fellowship is going to die, because the strong need the weak. This is a a completely different idea that you would hear in our culture. Our culture seeks to eliminate weakness. And the church revels and celebrates weakness. That is very different from what we're taught in schools and what we see in the media. We celebrate weakness. We think that we need weak people around us. If I am not weak, I need weak people around me. Why? Well, think about the gospel again. How does Jesus accomplish salvation of humanity? How does he do that? Is it through a powerful conquest? Through weapons? Through accomplishments? No. He comes in weakness. Think about these things. Poverty. Oppression. Rejection. Loneliness. Depression. Being abandoned by your friends. Physical pain. Suffering and even death. All those things are true of Jesus and how he saves us. Jesus comes in weakness. So we celebrate weakness because there's value in brokenness and weakness. And so for the believer, we should never think it's only the weak that need the strong. No, the strong need the weak as much as the weak need the strong. If you feel that you're strong, you have something to offer. You feel like you have maybe more money than other people. Maybe you have more time than other people. Maybe you're healthier than other people. Maybe you have a particular skill than other people. Yes, there's other people who need you, but you need those other people that are not like you. This is, this is a, a big... I feel like that, that needs to be, we need to be reminded of that in our churches because we... Again, I'm generalizing and stereotyping, so please forgive me. Not every church is like that. But I feel like so many of our churches, our evangelical churches, that believe in the gospel of salvation coming through weakness have followed the world's wisdom in trying to eliminate weakness and celebrating strength. I mean, think about the kind of, uh, the kind of Christian spokespeople that we want to be up front so the world will be attracted to the gospel. They're all accomplished people, <laughs> They're all people who are very good at something. Somebody wins a Super Bowl and they happen to be a Christian, let's invite them to church because they can talk to others and invite them to Christ. But what's what's the connection? We're inviting somebody successful, somebody strong, somebody accomplished. To tell them about the gospel of weakness? How does that work? We've bought into this idea that, that success is really what it's all about. It's the accomplishment, it's the victory, it's the whatever you have been very good at. That's what makes you attractive. But in Christ's eyes, it's different. He says it's your weakness that makes you appeal to me. It's not your accomplishment. The accomplishment actually actually doesn't help us come to Christ, it hinders us. Now I'm going to give you one illustration to hopefully explain what I mean. There's a church that, I know kind of, not, not very well, but a church I know of, that uh, they put on these big outreach events trying to reach their community with the gospel. Very good motivation, right? We all agree with that. And then they invited Nick Voyachik. I can't say, I can never say his name. Nick Voyachik, I think that's right. Um, he's, he's a Christian evangelist, and he was born without all four of his limbs. Now, he goes around the world and he speaks, and he's an excellent speaker very passionate, great to listen to. So they invited him to speak the gospel to their community. There's a big deal, big event. It was, you know, multi multicast everywhere. You know, it was a big deal. Why? Because they wanted to communicate the gospel to their neighbors. And yet, when the family, there was a family in their church, in fact, a family whose father was on staff with the church is one of the pastors, who have adopted several children with Down syndrome, asked the church to accommodate their kids in Sunday school. The church refused to do that. And they end up moving, going to a different church, getting a different job, moving to a different city. How can it be that the same church can promote an event that really pushes a person in obvious tremendous weakness and brokenness to the front, turn around and refuse to serve their members who also have very similar, uh, similar weaknesses. How can it be? The church is in love with success because Nick Voyacek is a very successful man. He's turned his weakness around and he's been very successful in speaking and lots of people really like him and want to go and listen to him speak, which is great. But that's not the attraction of the gospel. It's not that he is super accomplished is that God loves him, and God has created him in a special way. And God works through him. That's the gospel, that God works in weakness, that God works in brokenness. And so when you have broken people in your own congregation, that's the people you celebrate. Those that can't speak, those that can't do very much, they don't seem to contribute very much to the community, and yet they do by their very being there, by being weak in the midst of the strong. This is a lesson we need to learn as a a Christian culture. It's not about overcoming things and then coming out on the other side and then proclaiming the victory. It's also about going through the struggle and speaking out of your struggle and welcoming people who are still struggling. We're not waiting for them to be done with their struggles. They're struggling right now, and through that weakness, through that brokenness, God speaks. The gospel is explained to others by our suffering and by our weakness. Now, look at verse 22. This, this is a revolutionary statement if we buy into the logic of the world about success and such things. Verse 22 says, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. They're indispensable. That means that we can't be without them. We can't function well as a church if we don't have people who are weak, who are broken, who are struggling. Now when we think about King's Table, our our inclusive children's ministry, you can think of it in two different ways. You can think of it as we're helping people in need, which is absolutely true. There are lots of people who have kids with special needs, people with disability who don't have a, a church to go to in our city. So we are filling a need. But also let's think about it from the other perspective of saying that they are filling our need. Yes, they need us. By us, I mean people with typical abilities, but we need them as much as they need us. Their presence here in the church, their presence in our lives, explains the gospel of weakness to us because it is so easy for somebody who is accomplished and typically able to forget that they need grace from God and to start boasting in yourself and not in the Lord. We need people with disabilities and special needs as part of our church. This, this is not just a ministry that happens. We need them in the church. We need them part of our life, as it is here in this congregation. This has been one of my greatest joys, to see this congregation change and to become an inclusive congregation, where it's okay to interrupt during the sermon. It's not a big deal. It's okay for, for kids to clap and walk around and scream. It's fine. Doesn't bother us because they're, they're us, they've become us, they're part of this church. And we're not going to put them up on stage when they've accomplished something great. We're just going to put them up on stage to do whatever they want to do. That's, that's how it works. Because we rejoice in weakness. The gospel compels us to rejoice in brokenness and weakness. Let me give you another quote here. Uh, I'm sure many of you came to expect that I would quote Jorgen Moltmann in the morning. Well, here's a Jorgen Moltmann quote for you. He says, he's a German, obviously German commentator and theologian. He says, Paul expects that in the community of Christ, there will be strong and weak, educated and uneducated, people who are good to look at and the plain. No one is useless of no, or of no value. No one can be dispensed with. So the weak, uneducated, and ugly have their own special charisma in the community of Christ's people. I love the way he puts it, that the people who have no charisma in the church have charisma. Why? All will be made like, in form, to the crucified Christ. Because the crucified Christ has assumed not just humanity, but also the misery of humanity in order to heal it. For that reason, there's no good charitable ministry by the non-disabled to the disabled unless this first of all recognizes and accepts the charitable ministry of the disabled to the non-disabled. Congregations without disabled members are, to put it bluntly, disabled congregations. Moltmann is saying that if you don't have people in the congregation who have different abilities, special needs, disabilities, who are struggling with mental health issues, if you don't have them in your congregation, your congregation is disabled, you're missing something, there's a handicap in your congregation. Now, I want to also make very clear that the point of, of of church and our church is not to minister to one particular group of people. We're supposed to be diverse even as we reach out to people with special needs. We also need to reach out to typical kids. We also need to reach out to other ethnic groups. We also need to reach out to other economic strata. All of that is true. But for our church, the example of that inclusivity is the world of special needs. And it has to be there. And, And let me encourage you to keep going with that. It is so important, not just for the families that are in our church now because of this ministry, but also for us who may not be affected by special needs who are in the church. It's important for us to welcome them and for them to become us, to be fully included into our community. Well, here's my last point. Each member has an influence on the whole body. So each member is different, each member is dependent on others, and each member has an influence on the whole body. Verse 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now we, anybody with a body, knows that that's exactly how it works, right? You stub your toe, your whole body hurts, right? <laughs> Isn't that true? It also surprises you every time. It's like, man, it really hurts. I, I, I tell my children that I realize that by age, I'm not. I'm not old, I shouldn't, my body shouldn't be breaking down at this point. But it feels like it does at times. And so I tell my children, anytime I I reach for something or, you know, whatever, we're roughhousing, and I I go, oh, I pulled something. And sometimes it's actually true, it's happening right then. And I know, I pulled a muscle a year ago, I'm not kidding, it's still not not right. And every time, like, my body turns a certain way, or or I run, I'm like, oh, I feel it. Now, it's one muscle, but my whole body is affected by it, right? I I can't do certain things because it hurts. That limits me in what I do, it it occupies me. If it hurts, if your tooth hurts, and you're trying to do homework, it's very difficult. Your mind is going to be occupied with the pain. That's how our bodies work. One member hurts, the whole body hurts. One member of the church hurts, the whole body should hurt. The reason it often doesn't is because we're not connected with that member but if there is interconnectedness if you know the people in your church if you know what's happening in their lives and you know that they hurt you will hurt too and you should of course we're a body united together different members different problems but we all feel or should feel what others feel now the other side of that is is of course the honor part. When one part of the body is honored, is noticed, is acknowledged, the whole body benefits from that. Now, here's my example. If you buy a pair of shoes, and they're particularly nice pair of shoes, you put them on and you say, man, I look good. Right? I'm talking about men. I'm not even talking about women. You feel good. You're like, and it's just your feet, by the way but your whole body, you walk differently now, you got this new spring to your step, you're smiling, what? you got new shoes. And you feel good about yourself. One part of your body is honored, your whole body benefits from it. When a man proposes to a woman and gives her that beautiful ring that is really quite little compared to the rest of the world, the rest of the body, right? It only fits on one finger, and yet... The whole person is honored by that. Everybody starts treating you differently. Everybody wants to look at the ring. It's just your finger, but your whole person is honored by that, right? That's how it works. The little part that gets noticed brings honor and glory to the whole body. So what does that mean for us? This is a call to real community. This is a call to life together. So that you know when someone's hurting, so you can hurt with them. So you know when somebody is excited and happy, something good happened to them, so you can rejoice with them. That's the church. That's what we're supposed to be like. Is it difficult to do? Absolutely, it's difficult. You have to be vulnerable. You have to be open with others. Not everybody knows what's going on in your life unless you tell them. Unless you're open about your struggles and your joys as well. Well I'd like to finish really briefly. I understand that I'm trying your patience here, but I'm going to finish on on some application here. If if you take a sort of a big picture approach to this passage, you will see that Paul is dealing with two biggest objections to this unity and cooperation and harmony in the body. Verses 14 through 19, you will see that he is exposing the feeling of inferiority that leads to the breakup of the body. Verses 20 through 26, he exposes the feeling of superiority that break up the body. Now, both are serious problems, and I'd like to explain each, and this will be sort of the final push towards community on my part for you to really consider and wrestle with it, because each one of us has a tendency to either feel superior or to feel inferior, at least in that moment, but mostly it seems to be a general tendency of personality and experience. People leave the church or stay and keep their distance for these two reasons. Now, what are the reasons? Well, the inferiority says they don't need me. They don't need me. I'm, I'm of no value. I'm useless. Nobody cares about me. Nobody listens to me when I speak. Nobody really knows what I'm like. That's inferiority. Superiority is different. Superiority says I don't need them. So people leave the church or stay at a distance from others inside the church because they don't feel like they need other people. So it's either that you feel that they don't need you or that you don't need them. And if you're in the church long enough, if you're, if you're in ministry long enough, you see that play out over and over again. When people leave the church, that's usually those are the two, one of the two reasons. They either say, I'm not needed there, nobody values me, or they say, I don't need them, I can do it on my own. Why do I bother with these people? Now let's, let's explain it a little bit. So if you feel unloved by others in the church, if you feel like you do not fit in, like your opinion does not matter, now let me be very clear to you, it may be all true. That may be objective reality. It may be that people don't care about you and your opinion really doesn't matter. But this is what's not true. What's not true is that they don't need you. Just because they don't care doesn't mean they don't need you. They need you desperately. You can't leave because they need you. They need you because they don't care. They need you to confront them on their sin. The church needs you. You are not useless. You may feel useless, but you are not useless. There's purpose for you to be in the church. This has happened more times than I would care to remember in my ministry. When somebody leaves the church because somebody else in the church said something in passing that was hurtful, that was offensive. Sometimes it actually wasn't. It was just misinterpreted. Sometimes it was offensive and hurtful, and it was on purpose so. And the person just says, you know what, I'm done. They don't need me there. They don't care. If they're going to say stuff like that, you know, why am I going to be around those people? And so, so the person leaves. And then, as, as a responsible pastor, I try to figure out the situation. I go after the person. I talk with them. And I say, why don't you figure it out? Don't you think they need to know? You may not want to be involved in the situation, but don't you think they need to know that they're hurting people by their, with their words like that? If you only think about yourself, you would say, well, I don't need that kind of grief, right? It's a perfectly legitimate feeling. But you're not thinking about other people what about the person who's given grief not just to you but to other people if they are intentionally hurting people don't you think they need you to tell them that they're doing that they may not know they may not care they need to be made to listen you need to come to them and say you hurt me it hurts when you say that now maybe it's just a person, you know something personal you said something happened but what's what what if it's systemic what's a, what, what if it is a church of racists And somebody says something racist, right? And the person who is offended by that says, well, I'm not going to be a part of that. Is it legitimate? Yes. You don't want to be a part of a church of racists if you're not a racist. It totally makes sense. But don't you think the racists need to know that they are racist? Don't you think they need to know that they're hurting others? Who's going to tell them? Other racists? Probably not. You need to tell them. You see, when we leave and we say, I don't need that kind of stuff, you don't need that kind of stuff, but they need you. That's why we don't leave. You stick it out. You don't keep a distance from people that disagree with you in church. you pull in closer for their sake, if not for your sake. Verse 18, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. You are here in this church today. At this time, by God's design. This is not random. Nothing is random. God places you here for this time in this community so he could work through you in the lives of others. You need to submit to his will. And you say, how do I serve others? Maybe through my pain. Maybe through being offended. Maybe through exposing some things that are difficult to talk about. But that's how we change when others talk to us about our problems. Now, that's inferiority. It's still pride. It's still a sinful. But superiority works differently. If you feel, maybe you're in the other group, if you feel like you don't need other Christians, like you can do it on your own, please hear me when I say, and God says that in his, in his Bible, that you can't do that on your own. You cannot be by yourself as a believer. You are part of the body you incomplete in yourself, but you are perfect in your role in the body, and you will never feel in place at home unless you assume that role in the larger body of believers. People leave what they call organized religion, which any religion is organized. People leave churches, people leave organizations because they say, I don't need that, right? I don't need them. But they do. We do. Let me tell you, based on my pastoral experience, it's not tremendously long or involved, but I've picked up on this. Anybody who isolates themselves from other believers is not going to do well spiritually. It usually goes down spiritually for them. They don't just isolate themselves from the church, they isolate themselves from Christ as well. We need others. We need others. They need us, but we need them. You You are not useless. You have a purpose in the body of Christ. Well, i got to wrap this up. So this is, we're going to come to to communion table. And I'd like you to really take this to heart. We're all different. You all have different different, uh, issues, different problems, different success stories as well. Think about how this affects you, okay? Is it superiority that you struggle with? Is it inferiority that you struggle with? Do you understand that you're part of the larger body? Are you committed to the church? Are you invested in the church? Take it to heart. Ask God to reveal to you what it means to you today. And as you think about it, if you're a believer, I encourage you to come to the table. You don't have to be part of our church to come to the table, uh, to the Lord's table, but you do have to be part of Christ. If you have been converted, if Jesus is your Savior, you live in union with him, he saved you, then this is for you. And as you come, you don't come alone. You come together with others. This is an expression of unity. We look at his body that was broken so we could be together. His blood that was spilled so we could be all gathered. The point of communion is for us to keep focused on Jesus again, to open ourselves up to the Holy Spirit and say, we all drank of the same spirit. We're all drenched in the same spirit. We all come together under Christ to the table. And if you're not a believer, I pray maybe this is the time for you to, to come to Jesus. Maybe this is the time when it clicks. You realize he suffered for me. He died for me. He rose for me to bring me into the presence of the Father forever. So let's pray, and then we're going to sing a song. And as we sing the song, we're going to come and take the, the cup and, and the bread.